Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 12, 2013, and my guest is Angus Bergen of Johns Hopkins University. He's the author of The Great Persuasion, Reinventing Free Markets Since the Depression. Angus, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you for having me on. Our topic today is your book, The Great Persuasion, which chronicles the reemergence of free market economics in the aftermath of the Great Depression. Let's start with the state of that viewpoint at the end of World War II. What was the intellectual situation for free market economics and free market economists? Yeah, well, what I found uh, was that the really striking thing about free market economics in the wake of World War II was, was just how downtrodden its leading proponents found it to be. Um, and so if you take somebody who at the time was seen as a really central figure in free market advocacy, Friedrich Hayek, author of The Road to Serfdom, which came out in 1944, uh, he really emphasized that very few people believed in uh, free market ideals, um, even among academic economists. We, today, we tend to think of economists as people who are broadly oriented towards the market mechanism. But at the time, even they, Hayek thought, were, were deeply skeptical of the capacities of the market to solve social problems. And in 1944, he publishes The Road to Serfdom, and what was its impact in in the short run? What kind of reaction did it get? Yeah, well, so Hayek himself, I think it's important to understand just as a little bit of background. He was uh, he grew up in a, a fairly aristocratic Viennese family. He was um, a fairly abstruse academic intellectual. So when he gave his initial talks at the London School of Economics in the early 1930s, uh, lots of people in the audience complained that they simply couldn't understand what he was saying. So he was a very unlikely public intellectual, and uh, that fed into his writing of The Road to Serfdom. He didn't think it was going to be a broadly popular book. He wrote it, he thought, for a few hundred people maybe in England who would who would go out and buy it. Um, and then it, it came out, and it, it started to sell very well in, in England, to his surprise. And, uh, and, and then the copy came out in the United States, and he was invited to head over there for a lecture tour. So he got on a boat uh, to head across the Atlantic, and when he arrived on the other shore, he was stunned to discover that he had become – a kind of uh, massive celebrity. Um, lots of people had encountered his work. And the primary reason for that is that Reader's Digest, which was enormously uh, popular at the time, had condensed it into about a 20-page version, uh, much easier to read than the original version, which is itself you know, fairly, fairly easy to read relative to the other things that Hayek had written. Uh, and that condensation got into the hands of tens of thousands of people. It was made available in reprints that went to over a million people. So in the United States at the time, that was an enormous readership for an economist. And uh, and so Hayek got off the boat and was uh, almost immediately ushered into a lecture with over 2,000 people, an overflow lecture in New York City. Um, and, you know, he'd never given talks like this before. So he was, he was stunned to be um, confronted by all the microphones and reporters and everything else um, and had to reconcile what he saw as his fairly abstract and complicated ideas with this massive wave of popular interest in them. And he got used to it. <laughs> well, he did and he didn't. You know, this is one of the really interesting things, I think, about Hayek is that he uh, – on the one hand, it, it's uh, it's very exciting, right? Any Anybody uh, in academia, whether they like to admit it or not, uh, loves the idea that lots of people out there want to hear what they have to say. And so he was fairly excited about that and that shows in some of his writings at the time and also when he wrote some of his later books that didn't sell as well. You can hear uh, little notes of lament. Uh, over their sales figures. Um, but at the same time, he was really ambivalent about the way that people were reading the book. Um, and, you know, the first thing to understand about that, I think, is that is that most people weren't reading the book. They were reading this 20-page condensation. And, and it's called a condensation 
But I, I argue that if you actually go through it, it's very hard to see it as such. It's not like they were just cutting out lots of paragraphs. Um, it's almost like you took the road to serfdom and put it in a blender and took out random sentences and words and combined them all together into uh, a fairly coherent seeming 20 pages. And so well, it really wasn't the book that Hayek had written it's a little like at the all. Mov- it's a little like the movie version of some long novels that you read. You know, they get some of the scenes. Oh, for sure, yeah. But they kind of miss exactly, but the it's sweep. even but you know, it's even more condensed. It's um it's uh the movie version at least there's not it's not supposed to be a consonance of form, right? It's not a written text, it's a visual text. People know that it's in some ways different whereas uh, this condensation, I mean, the ambiguity of these Reader's Digest condensations is that they're still nominally by their authors, even if they weren't precisely written by them. And, uh, and so, you know, one result naturally when you, when you reduce something down to 20 pages is that it, it becomes simpler. And Hayek saw his views as very complicated. He saw them as in some ways ambivalent about, um, you know, they're, they're, sometimes unclear and vague, often very nuanced in how they think that the market should operate, where it should be embraced and where it should be constrained. And uh, lots of people got their hands on this this condensed version and got very excited about a version of Hayek that he didn't think exactly represented his own views. And it got some rather uh, harsh, savage, I would say, criticism from fellow academics, some of whom, <laughs> some of whom hadn't read it probably, but – well, it, it did, but at the same time, it attracted some enthusiasm. You know, when I when I talk about the the, the nuance of uh, the road to serfdom that's sometimes forgotten, um, you know, one of the really interesting things is just how enthusiastic Keynes was when he wrote Hayek about it. I mean, Keynes Keynes indicated that he agreed with almost everything that Hayek said, <laughs> and uh, and it's so just, I think that goes to show that um, you know immediately you think of Hayek and Keynes as being opposed in lots of ways, which they were, but that that goes to show that this is a little bit different from the um, the, the version of Hayek that we sometimes receive even in a caricature uh, representation today. Well, yeah, that enthusiasm was in a letter, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So That's he, right. he may have been yeah. – they were friends. He, he may have just been encouraging. Uh, I, I assume, I assume they were, he certainly agreed with the idea that he didn't want to see England turned into a totalitarian state, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> Well, yeah. Well, so you know, this is a this is actually a crucial problem for me. I mean, I'm a I'm a historian, and I spend a lot of time going through people's letters. And um, you always have to ask yourself, you know, to what degree? How do you how do you value what people say in a private letter versus what they say in their published uh, in the published record? And you have to think about them a little bit differently. But I, I'm inclined to think that it's actually important. I mean, you read lots of nasty letters, lots of criticisms and letters. People don't always just say what they what somebody else wants them to hear. There's there's usually at least a kernel of meaning behind it. And um, and so yeah, so part of what Keynes was doing was encouraging a friend. They obviously shaped, they shared a lot of interests during the war. Um, but at the same time, he I think was acknowledging that Hayek was accepting large uh, large possibilities for certain kinds of social provision and so on. Um, that uh, that a, a sort of reduced understanding of Hayek's views at the time uh, doesn't always allow for. So it was an important moment in this post depression, post war. This book comes out; it gets a lot of attention. Uh, and a group of people at that point, including Hayek, uh, decide that they need to do something in concert or something, at least get together. And the Montpelerin Society is born, and you spend a lot yeah. of time on the Montpelerin Society. It's um, it's something that I knew a little bit about, and now I know a lot more about thanks to your book. And it's <laughs> it's utterly fascinating because it anybody who cares about uh, – Political movements, uh, rhetoric, the marketing of ideas, all those issues come together in in the Montpelerin Society and its aftermath. So start with its beginnings. How did it start? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so Hayek found himself, uh, as we've discussed a little bit, in this position where he suddenly had this newfound fame that extended beyond the economics profession alone. And uh, at the same time, he looked at the world situation and saw what he, he saw as a uh, kind of inexorable march towards totalitarianism. Um, so on the one hand, you obviously, in the wake of World War II, the, the memory of, of, uh, of fascism is, uh, is deeply ingrained. On the other hand, you have what seems like a fairly aggressive Soviet communism um, that has the potential to expand uh, ever outwards across the world. And then if you look at home, if you look at England um, or you look at the United States, you see the rise of uh, much 
much more substantial state apparatuses than had been the case 20 or 30 years before. So Hayek was looking at these broader trends and considering them in light of his newfound fame and trying to think, what can I do to, to leverage uh, to leverage my fame in order to try to alter the course of events. And this is, I think, something that's really interesting about Hayek. A normal person uh, confronted with that question would be inclined to go outwards and speak to broad audiences, give lots of public lectures. And uh, you know, Hayek had done a little of that on the Road to Serfdom lecture tour. Uh, but he didn't think that was actually the effective way to bring about political change. Uh, his his decision was that if you want to bring about long-term ideological change, the way to do it is to get together uh, a group of highly selected, uh, largely intellectual, some business and political elites, and get them to talk to each other about their views and try to reground them, try to think through what the central problems were, and develop a way to understand them and a way to represent them to the public that would be compelling in the longer term, and that if, if you were successful in generating a sense of cohesion within that group and in founding a, a, a genuine intellectual project, over time that would filter down uh, you know, to other intellectuals and then from them to college students and then from, from them to positions of power 20 or 30 years later. So he saw this as a very long-term project. And so the Montpelier Society is what he created in order to try to achieve that goal. Uh, he started it in 1947. It was a group of uh, just under 40 intellectuals, politicians, business people, and so on. They'd all gathered together at the base of Mont Pelerin in, in the Swiss Alps uh, for a week to discuss the state of, uh, of free market thought and uh, the broader political state of the world and to try to figure out what they could do to improve it. Really, in a way, it, he, he was trying to capture what a great economics department or a great university is about. But there wasn't a place that was that friendly at the time or a place where a lot of people could get together. And as you point out in the book, he wasn't particularly interested in it only being economists. He really wanted it to be a, a very wide range of, uh, of thinkers because that was the way he thought about the world. Yeah, no, and this is this is so uh, crucial to understand about about Hayek, and I think about this whole era of market-oriented thought. Um, there's a tendency when we talk about the history of economic thought to to look at it as an internal problem, a kind of doctrinal problem in the history of economics itself. But part of what I'm trying to do in this book is to say that economics is deeply engaged with questions of moral philosophy, with questions of political practice, um, and uh, and so on down the line. That it's a thick social problem that needs to be considered as such, and that's very much what Hayek himself thought. And he thought that if you want to think about economics as a, as a philosophical problem, in addition to a technical set of problems, uh, you need to bring together economists and philosophers and uh, people who do political theory and, uh, and get them all discussing with one another. So this was, you know, lot, today lots of people talk about interdisciplinarity. At, at the time, that wasn't really the term that they used, but this was very much an attempt to create an interdisciplinary endeavor to say, what can, what can we as economists take from philosophers and what can we tell them? And is there, in establishing dialogue across people who share a certain loose set of views, can we figure out new ways to frame our beliefs that would be compelling to a broader public? So... Who were some of the key people at that first meeting? Yeah, well, so that you can look at it in terms of uh, institutions is, and was, is one way to look at it. So uh, there, there's a large contingent from the University of Chicago Economics Department, which was incredibly important in the American economy, uh, the world of American economics at the time. Uh, so some of them were Frank Knight, um, who was uh, he'd grown up uh, as a as a farm boy and still had a little bit of that uh, rough hewn quality, uh, but at the same time was an incredibly important uh, kind of philosophical theorist of economics. He wrote a great book called Risk, Uncertainty and Profit uh, that was based on his dissertation um, and had made his reputation from that. And uh, his colleague, Jacob Viner, who was uh, worked on international trade and uh, had, had done actually a little bit of work in the Roosevelt administration. And Henry Simons, a uh, third colleague of theirs who also is very important in that world. And then you had the Institute for International Studies in Geneva, which had been home uh, for a while to Ludwig von Mises, the Viennese uh, economist who had been a kind of mentor to Hayek early in his career, and also to Wilhelm Rupke, displaced German uh, sociologist and economist who uh, was a major player in these early years. Um, 
And finally, you had a contingent from the LSE, the London School of Economics, and so that's where Hayek was um, for the 30s and most of the 40s, and his colleague Lionel Robbins, also a very important London School uh, of Economics professor at the time. So they, they were they were the major players, but then there was a broad penumbra of people from a number. It was most it was all across the Atlantic world, so lots of European countries. Um, uh, they really dominated the numbers in the early years. And, uh, and also they brought in some people who, they brought in some journalists. Um, so over the course of the society's early meetings, you had John Davenport, a, a journalist at Fortune magazine, for instance. Um, and there were some funding institutions. The Volcker Fund helped to, uh, this little charitable foundation that helped to finance the travel for the Americans to the first meeting. And the Foundation for Economic Education, which was designed to bring economics to the masses, um, were represented there as well. You left off uh, two Chicago economists who were younger than Knight, Viner, and Simons. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, so students of Knight's, yeah, uh, Milton Friedman and George Stigler, yeah. uh, very important. And um, I, uh, so they, the reason I left them off that list is that they still were very young at the time. I mean, we think of them as, as these enormous names in the present day, and, and uh, Friedman certainly was a frequent contributor to the initial meeting. Uh, but at the time, he had much lower stature than somebody like Frank Knight, who almost nobody uh, outside of the academic world talks about today. Right, which is interesting. But he, Knight, obviously, Knight, Viner, and Simons are giants. And you talk, uh, you bring them back to life a little bit, which is which is a very nice thing. And we have a lot of their work here at the Library of Economics and Liberty. We'll put some links up to their uh, to their bios and work. Uh, so yeah. in that early period, well, I, say, I mentioned I mentioned Simons in the context of the University of Chicago Economics Department at the time, but he actually died. He died in 1947, so he wasn't able to actually attend the first Mont Pelerin meeting, even though they were they were very clear that he was part of the inspiration for it. And so um, he he lived on in, in memory, but wasn't actually a participant there. And he was an early, as you point out, he was an early uh, spokesperson for the free market ideas that that were struggling to get any kind of foothold at that point. But the that's right. Well, and uh, it, it, just to say something about Simons in that regard that I think is is really interesting is uh, so Simons was really seen in the 1930s as a kind of free market radical. This uh, the Chicago economist who wrote uh, what other economists really saw as diatribes in favor of the free market, not as really scholarly writings, but as um, much more oriented towards a popular audience. But when you actually read them today. <laughs> they they read they don't read like diatribes in favor of the free market really at all. Yeah. Um, so Simons had lots of ideas that almost seemed like uh, sort of crackpot um, ideas from the far left. Um, like for instance, uh, the, the notion that um, that uh, you should break up all large corporations and have America be a, a nation of small businesses because large corporations distorted uh, the process of, of free competition, for instance. Um, so, and he was in favor uh, of steeply progressive income taxation and uh, things like that. So you get this wonderful experience of these later Chicago economists, people like Friedman, uh, or there's a great quote from Ronald, quote, uh, Ronald Coase, looking back at, uh, at Simons' early writings and saying, why did we think this guy was a free market advocate? It is, his, his views look so different to us today. And I think that speaks to some of the transformation in the way that people think about economic problems from the 1930s to uh, the, the present. And that's true of the road to serfdom, right? The road to serfdom has mm -hmm. a social safety net. It has support for a social safety net. Uh, health insurance, um, and I think you know people who read it read it then thought it was the most radical uh, right wing propaganda. Now it seems kind of tame. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's really striking. Hayek has some passages where he talks about the, that that it's an important function for the state to have potentially to um, to relieve the misery of the poor, to uh, uh, to aid the sick, um, to prevent factories from spewing poisons out into the environment. And uh, so, so he seems to have a, a fairly robust concept of the social safety net and uh, the regulatory state. And what he's really concerned with is is the government actually taking over, uh, you know, things like the, the the National Recovery Administration, where the government actually starts to take over. Um, uh, price setting mechanisms of businesses themselves and uh, to engage in large scale planning of that kind. And so, um, and so, yeah, so Hayek, Hayek reads um, much less extreme today than I think people sometimes make him out as being when you, when you look back at the road to serfdom, but it does tell us something that at the time this was, this was seen as really radical right-wing uh, propaganda. So talk about the early years of the Mont Pelerin society. There were some interesting tensions uh, many of which are, of course, never resolved. It's a strange um, uh, club. Uh, I've, I've been to one of their meetings, and if I, if I can, mm -hmm. I have a photograph of um, 
of of myself being upbraided by Milton Friedman for a mistake that he thought I'd made, which probably did make in in, 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 in raising a question <laughs> at, at at one of the sessions. He was telling me why mm-hmm. I was wrong, which is something he, of course, liked to do. And in the picture, he's talking, yeah. and I'm nodding. But if I if I can, I'll, I'll get a picture <laughs> of that up on the uh, maybe at Cafe Hayek, my blog. But um, in the early years, now Friedman, as you say, was young. He's going to become a much more important figure by 19 the early 60s. But in the in the late 40s and 50s, uh, the society was grappling with some issues that seem rather strange to us today, but they were very front and center then. What were they? Oh, yeah. Well, um, so the, the, yeah, the major issues that the society was thinking about in the 40s and, and 50s. Um, well, so some of them, you know, the, 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 big, the big concern in a way that animated the gathering in the first place was a, a notion that Hayek had that what he called uh, 19th century liberalism or Manchester liberalism in reference to the old British Manchester school from the 19th century um, uh, had advocated a, a certain vision of the free market that didn't make room for um, for social ideals. So what, what he saw as um, uh, the central one really for him was religion. What's what's the relationship between the free market and and religion? And uh, do free marketeers become aligned in the public imagination with a certain kind of agnostic or atheistic attitude that doesn't pay attention to social traditions and religious beliefs? And so Hayek wanted to wanted this group, a central mission for this group uh, for him was to try to figure out how to come up with a way of framing the free market that would be uh, friendly to those who held religious beliefs and those who were deeply concerned about the maintenance of social traditions. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that this is actually, this is very much resonates as a concern today because I think we're all aware that the market is this enormous source for social disruption, right? Um, when, uh, as you know, the, the, the Schumpeterian process of creative destruction is the central aspect of how the market works. And so in a period, in the wake of the 1930s, in the wake of the 1940s, so you have depression and war is on everybody's mind. There's a deep concern with how do we have a social order that can remain stable, um, that won't lead to political disruption or enormous financial dislocations. And and so one of the central reasons Hayek thought that the free market was discredited in people's imaginations uh, was that they saw it as responsible for these kinds of disruptions, that the dislocations of the market led to the Great Depression and led to the rise of fascism and, and so on. And so he wanted to figure out a way to frame the market that would seem friendly to traditions, to stability, uh, to religious belief, um, and therefore make it once again compelling to an everyday person. And he was not a religious man himself, but he felt he had respect for religion. You can read that in The Fatal Conceit and elsewhere. Um, and certainly as a marketing issue, he felt it was important. Yeah, well, yeah, this does not necessarily align with one's own personal religion, right? I mean, Frank Knight is one of the fascinating cases in that regard because he uh, he was notoriously anti-religious in some ways. He every time supposedly uh, uh, he saw somebody in the back of the lecture hall with a clerical collar on, he would give up the lecture he was giving and just start ranting about all of the problems with the Catholic Church. Um, and so he had, in some ways, deeply anti-religious views. He was uh, he just loathed what he saw as the dog- dogmatism that could be associated with religion. At the same time, at these early meetings, he was one of the most vocal people about saying that they needed to figure out ways uh, to open themselves up to religious belief. That the free market itself, if it becomes this sort of abstract, uh, dry logic, uh, this economistic logic that's wholly separate from the search for meaning that animates uh, religious uh, belief, that it wouldn't be compelling to anybody and that there may well be a reason for that, that the market itself, it uh, shouldn't only be seen in these kinds of abstract terms, that it needs to be connected to broader questions of meaning and morality. Yeah. And in our time, we have these issues with effect of the alleged effect. I think it's sometimes exaggerated for political reasons, but the effect of you know, Walmart and the super large big box stores on Main Street and traditional American towns. We've got this the outsourcing issue. And it's, the whole issue of values and meaning, I think, remains the central question for uh, those of us who favor liberty. And I, I think about that issue a great deal. I think about how it can be that people can list Ayn Rand as the second most influential her book, Atlas Shrugged, is the second most influential book they've read in, a, in surveys, allegedly. It's what people say. Right. 
And yet her ideas have so little impact apparently on people. There's a small group, of course, that, that hold her views, but her book is a particularly um, anti-religious, amoral, uh, self-centered uh, viewpoint. And there's it's a fascinating book. It had a big impact on me. But most of the people that I know who read it find it repugnant in many ways just for that reason. Right. Not because of the economics, just because it's 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 self-centered uh, right. or selfish, depending on how you want to phrase it. Most people are interested in helping people other than themselves and don't see anything wrong with it. In fact, they think it's a good thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, so, and to me, this is really a crucial problem. And it's one that a lot of people writing about the history of economics don't devote sufficient attention to, uh, is what is, what is the embedded moral theory that these people adhered to? And, and how did, how did the moral assumptions of economists change over time? And, uh, so for me, you know, the, there's a really instructive three-part comparison that you can look at to think about some of these, these changes. Um, so if you look first at how Knight thought about these problems. Frank Knight, the great early Chicago economist. Um, Knight had a really interesting view about the relationship between markets and morals. And he was, on the one hand, a market advocate. He thought that capitalism delivered great benefits to societies and should be preserved. But at the same time, he thought that it inspires behaviors that are repugnant. And so you just talked about a lot of them, this kind of uh, self-interest, greed, you know, the stuff that uh, makes its way into the front page of business sections on a regular basis. Um, Knight, Knight worried that um, that market society creates precisely the, the, the behaviors that lead to its undermining, that it, that it generates a certain kind of greed that eventually makes it unsustainable. And so the central problem of market societies, as he saw it, was to try to create a framework uh, that would restrain those excesses sufficiently in order to allow markets to continue to uh, operate successfully. Um, now, if you contrast that with Hayek, in my reading of Hayek, at least um, uh, I think some powerful sections on these issues in the Constitution of Liberty, Hayek says that uh, we shouldn't favor uh, – that, that markets don't necessarily lead to uh, beneficial behaviors or uh, destructive behaviors. Uh, rather, the reason that we should favor market society over socialism or, or communism is that, as, as he saw it, it's a morally neutral arbiter. Right? Markets yield outcomes that don't claim to have any moral significance. Um, and as soon as you have a moral arbiter, you have somebody enforcing their moral view of the world on everyone else. Um, and that creates all kinds of problems and restrictions. So to him, the very virtue of the markets was the fact that they were detached from these kinds of moral issues. And then finally, if you look at Friedman, and you talk about the, uh, uh, an ethos of self-interest. I mean, Friedman, Friedman thought that there was complete, uh, basically complete overlap between market outcomes and, uh, and people's contributions to society, right? And so if one is, uh, is, is virtuous, um, the market will reward it. If one is doing something that benefits other people, um, you'll be paid commensurately. And uh, so for him, it's really almost exactly the opposite of somebody like Frank Knight. Um, the market doesn't generate behaviors that we that, may, that are cause for concern, but rather it generates precisely the, the the behaviors that you want to see. And I think Adam Smith also felt that the, that the market was a civilizing force, that it encouraged virtue and rewarded virtue. We know, of course, there are exceptions. Uh, the question is, what's the alternative? You know, I like the old joke. I think it's. I don't know where it's from. It might be from Mad. Somebody said it's from Mad Magazine that under uh, capitalism, man oppresses man, but under socialism, it's the other way around. Now, no <laughs> system. Bureaucrats are greedy too. So the, politicians are self-interested. So there's no the question. Is what's the what's the best way to harness uh, people's best aspirations while restraining their worst? And I, I think what's missing from most discussions today of the market and so-called free market economics is the people forget about what it's often called civil society, the ability of people to spontaneously, voluntarily create organizations that help other people. And to me, that's part of the market vision of Hayek, and it often gets forgotten as if it's somehow mar – the market is only about buying and selling. It's not just about buying and selling. Well, and you know, and one of the fascinating uh – one of the fascinating areas, if you look at somebody like Friedman talking about these kinds of issues, is that Friedman claimed – and um, so if you were to take – and I'm not going to evaluate the rightness or wrongness of these different perspectives, but if you, if you were to take a, a leftist perspective on the market and, um, and uh, sort of democratic thought, the, the concern that a lot of leftists have is that large corporations or wealthy individuals effectively use their money 
to uh, buy the opinions of large bodies of people um, through all kinds of propagandistic means, right? Yeah, Friedman had an interesting contrary perspective. Um, you know, Friedman's view on that was that um, that wealthy people enable the incubation of dissent. Um, that is to say that if you have a, a wealthy person who has some crackpot view that nobody else agrees with, uh, but if you have a free society, they can go off and fund a little institute that supports that view. And, uh, and that can uh, help to foster a greater diversity of perspectives than is possible in a society that doesn't actually have sufficient, sufficient amalgamations of wealth to make that kind of inst- institution building possible. There are benefits and hazards in terms of public opinion in relation to large aggregations of wealth, but, but Friedman was adamant about drawing attention to, to the benefits. Yeah, the same role that venture capital plays in destroying large businesses that are comfortable and not, not innovative uh, startups can challenge them ultimately through if there are enough wealthy people yeah. to fund their, their competitors. The same could be true of, of the intellectual marketplace. That's his argument, right? Yeah, that's right. That's that, that's that's really well put. And the um, you know, I think the fascinating thing about looking at some of these early members of the Mont Pelerin Society is that they they really saw their project in precisely those terms. So if you look at an organization like the Volcker Fund that helped to, to fund the Americans' travel to attend the first meeting, you know, it is that the, the people involved in that wanted to support free market views, and their idea was that you just you you put what are relatively small amounts of money into getting these kinds of people together. Much like uh, you know, a, a venture capitalist puts a little bit of, of money into a variety of little startups, and then you just sort of wait, and some of them, will, some of those bets will work out. Some of the people who attend that meeting will go on to do really interesting things, maybe as a result of having attended it, and uh, other people will turn out to be duds, and you can't really know at the outset, and so you spread your bets, and uh, and then you have to be patient, and you have to wait and see what happens. So in the late 1950s, another uh, voice uh, against. Um uh, communism at least comes forward, and that's William F. Buckley of the National Review. And I was fascinated. I, I didn't know anything about Hayek's uh, views of that, but Hayek was not comfortable with the National Review and Buckley, and Russell Kirk, yeah. and other conservatives. And both he and Friedman uh, resisted and resented being called conservative. Uh, why was right. that? They're not the same reasons, of, of course, but why did they resent that? And what, why were they not comfortable with the, this, the rise of conservatism in America at the time? Um, well, you know, actually, I think uh, I'll, I'll answer that question in two parts because because um, there was a little bit of a change in Hayek's perspectives. It's um, Hayek was initially quite enthusiastic about Russell Kirk when Russell Kirk came out with his giant book on the conservative mind. Uh, Hayek was uh, fairly enthusiastic about a lot of it. He had some some quibbles, but um, he thought that he largely shared Kirk's point of view. Um, of course, yeah, fast forward a few years later and you have Hayek getting up before the Mont Pelerin Society to give his talk on uh, why I'm not a conservative, uh, which is you can largely read as a criti- – you can read it as a criticism of several people, but it's largely oriented against uh, Kirk's views. And so Hayek had, had taken a turn. Um, and I think you can begin – I argue that you can begin to see there the rigidification of certain kinds of um, – of different perspectives in the American conservative intellectual world. People who saw themselves in the late 40s and early 50s as sharing largely the same kind of project, by the time you get to the late 50s and early 60s, begin to see themselves as more oriented towards something that we'd see now as libertarianism or more oriented towards a certain kind of conservative traditionalism and and see their views as not being as aligned as they once thought they were. Um, And so, yeah, so you see Hayek giving this lecture on why I'm not a conservative and – and Hayek's concern about conservatism is that uh, conservative embraces the status quo. And Hayek thought, you know, the market is uh, a progressive phenomenon. The market uh, creates change. Uh, somebody like Kirk, you know, Kirk was famous for refusing to drive in automobiles and wearing a cape around and uh, and uh, all and living in, you know, in northern Michigan in, in, in a sort of ancient house. And so he very much seemed uh, he loved uh St. Andrews and uh, these sort of old Gothic buildings. And so he was somebody who was envisioning himself as in some ways aligned with a certain kind of medieval ideal, let alone um, an early modern or, or market society ideal. Uh, so Hayek you know, says that if being an advocate of the free market is, is something uh, really different from that, that it's not an embrace of the status quo or a nostalgic valorization of an old way of being. Um, instead, it's, it's, it is, as he, he saw it, a certain kind of progressivism, progressivism engendered by the forces of the market um, itself. 
Um, and Friedman very much hewed to those views. But um, the the one thing I'd add to that is that it's just fascinating to look in the, in the 1950s at how much trouble these people had with all these different kinds of terms. So whether it's libertarian or conservative uh, or neoliberal or classical liberal or Hayek used the term at one point old wig. Um, you know, they had all these different words that they could conceivably use to describe themselves, but they really couldn't, it, the, the early members of the Mont Pelerin Society couldn't uh, figure out what they actually were. They all disagreed about what they should uh, should name themselves. Yeah, I think actually um, it, it sounds kind of silly to worry about, but I think it's actually quite important. Um, I, I'm often called a conservative economist, and I hate that. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I always say I'm not a conservative. I'm a classical liberal. Classical liberal is, is, is a nice phrase. Nobody knows what it means. You can then describe it. You know, usually say limited government yeah. and personal responsibility. It's not a bad forward yeah. description, but uh, old wig is really not a good term to market yourself as. Uh, <laughs> right? right. And I think without a term, uh, without a banner to rally under, I think they, that, that hampered them. And I think it hampers the movement today. Because yeah, that's absolutely right. And it really, when I talk about this rigidification of differences over the course of the 50s and, and early 60s, you know, one of the reasons is that they couldn't actually figure out it, or, you know, it's both a reason and a symptom, I think, but they couldn't actually figure out what it was that they all precisely agreed upon. They all felt that they shared certain kinds of uh, loose affiliations, but how they defined it really differed. And, uh, and so each of these different kinds of terms signified a different orientation subtly. So, you know, um, at, at the time, and this is really different from the way the term is used today, but at the time to call yourself a neoliberal was to emphasize that your views were uh, – the ways in which your views were different from, uh, say, 19th century Manchester liberalism, right? And so all the – we've talked about some of the ways, the embrace of uh, of, a, of social insurance and uh, so on down the line, all the ways in which you saw uh, government intervention potentially working to the benefit of society. Um, that was what at the time made you neoliberal. Um, if you called yourself libertarian, you know, it had this slight uh, anarchist uh, undertone that worried even somebody like Friedman, who really on almost every case thought that the market was the way to go, worried that it made it made you sound sort of libertine in a way that uh, that was aligned with a certain kind of fringe sensibility. So he thought that that was a marketing problem. Um, and uh, as you say, conservative signifies you know, an orientation towards the status quo that it doesn't really conform with a lot of their views. And so you have all these different terms, but none of them seem quite right. Yeah, my um, my former colleague and occasional guest here at Contact Dan Klein, likes the term Smith Hayek, you know, which is uh, it's, it's not <laughs> well, a good yeah, it's not a good well, marketing term, but it's very accurate. I think the way a lot well, of people today though, feel. Well, it's funny though because that kind of has. That kind of has resonance with, uh, you know, Hayek wanted to call the Mont Pelerin Society the Acton Tocqueville Society, yeah. and that 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 caused all kinds of uh, disputes over, you know, the fact that they were both these uh, European Catholics was concerning to people who were thinking about marketing these ideas in the United States, for instance. Um, but uh, but I think the fact that you actually can't find a single term and instead try to associate yourself with the views. Uh, of of people, the sort of complex views of different individuals is telling in its own right. Yeah, a lot of the there's a lot of entertainment in your book is you know, people resign, threaten to resign, don't want to go along with, and it's a very academic game that we all play. That you know this, I'm going to join a club. It's got to be just like me, and no club really is just like <laughs> me except my club, and so it's a lonely club. Right. And if you want to join with others, you got to compromise a little bit and. Most academics aren't so good at that, and so that's that was interesting. Um, but let's move that's on. That's right, and you know, and then and I think that aligns too with the fact that um, you know academics are, are often most violent in describing their disagreements with the people who are relatively close to them. Of course, right? and so um, <laughs> yeah. you look at the Mont Pelerin Society meetings, and I think that there can be a certain kind of people who don't really look that closely into them can sort of assume that everybody largely agreed on a lot of things, but then you actually dig into the transcripts, and it's almost all disagreement. These people sure. all. Um, expressing um, deep en enmity over relatively minor distinctions. Right. Some of that's marketing too, right? You're, you're trying to create your own, uh, your own product. So it's, it's, it's a complicated thing. But let, let's, move right. on to, let's move on to Milton Friedman, which is a, a big chunk of the last half of the book. And right. uh, you have a lot of interesting things to say about Friedman. One, one of the things that I was most fascinated by was your uh, discussion of his uh, methodology work, which – yeah, I don't usually think of as being so important. It was important in, in certain, in sort of, to my mind, justifying the Chicago School of of economics, which is a very 
uh, what I think of as a, a plot when I think of it as applied price theory, meaning right. certain basic assumptions about individuals, individuals maximizing their own self-interest, broadly defined, that could include charity, could include altruism. It's it's a fairly neutral idea that that the world then has empirical realities that either are consistent with those those views or not. And that's to me sort of what his paper's about. It's paper on methodology, but you have a different take on it. You argue that his methodological view helped advance his ideological position. Explain what what you mean. Absolutely, yeah. Um, well, so I, I think it helped it in in uh, in, in two ways. Uh, but you should, before I, I get yeah, into that, you should that, say what it I, is I think, first. <laughs> I, I, I'm, yeah, I apologize. Well, I'll just step back and say I think the first thing to understand about Friedman's methodology is it's it's uh, the way that he represents it is at least a little bit unique in the time. And one reason is that he was educated in two different places. Lots of people think of Friedman as a Chicago economist, but he. You know, he spent a year at Chicago and then went and spent a year at Columbia. And uh, and in, in Chicago, you know, it was much more oriented. It wasn't a a priori view of how you think about economics. It wasn't a notion that you just generate uh, pure abstractions out of uh, out of thin air. But at the same time, it was much more theoretically inclined. It was um, it was you you start with theory and you work from there. And then he went to Columbia, which was really oriented towards empirical data collection. So Wesley Mitchell, the great institutionalist economist at the time, uh, was uh, uh, emphasized that uh, the main duty of the economist was to assemble empirical data, and then you try to induce from that uh, what the theory should be. And uh, so Friedman had this dual education in two very different ways of thinking about economics, and he brought them together in a sense in the methodology of positive economics. Uh, and so what what he, what he said is that the economist starts with theory, a kind of uh, a hypothesis. And uh, and then you you take that hypothesis out into the world and you test it against uh, the empirical data that you can gather um, that's that's relevant to it, and uh, that might prove or disprove it. And you try to refine the hypothesis, um, and uh, that's the way that he thought that economists should generally proceed. Now, the I think this is important for a couple of reasons. Now, one is that I see it as a kind of embedded rehabilitation of the idea of um, the homo economicus, the, the economic person, the rational calculator. Um, and so this was an idea that if you read economists in the 1930s was deeply maligned. If anybody advocated for the free market on the basis of the idea that the individual is a kind of uh, rational utility maximizer, uh, they were criticized because of uh, some things we've already discussed in, in uh, the, uh, the past uh, half hour, but uh, these uh, that it seems to contradict all kinds of behaviors in people's everyday lives. People are very conscious of the way that they and their friends and families seem altruistic. And so this idea of a rational calculator seems intuitively wrong. But what Friedman said is that what makes a, a hypothesis uh, useful and powerful isn't whether or not that it accords with our intuitions, uh, but whether or not it's accurate in a predictive sense when looking at broad masses of empirical data. And so, um, so his methodology essay was an attempt to say that we don't evaluate a hypothesis of this kind on the basis of whether or not it seems right to us. We evaluate it based purely on its predictive capacities. And there he thought it was very robust. Um, and so that's one way in which it was important. Um, and the second is in, in this emphasis on empirical uh, data collection. It's, um, if you compare an Austrian view of economics, which, which uh, derives basic principles from, um, from abstract theorizing, and um, if in the case of a purist, somebody like Mises, you know, there's basically no empirical dimension. You're, um, you're, you're creating a, elaborate theories based on um, your own thought alone. Uh, and you compare it to Friedman's perspective, which is very much outward reaching. They're very different forms of argumentation. And I think this gets to what you, exactly what you were saying about Ayn Rand. Why has Ayn Rand read by so many people but in, and influential, intensely influential among subsets of them, but at the same time, the broader influence in the social environment is more limited. And uh, Friedman's argument about that, he made it explicitly about Mises and about Rand, is that if you argue that you have an abstract logic that's universally true, that you can derive wholly from thoughts within your head, if other people don't believe that they share that logic, you're going to have a, an enormously difficult time convincing them that you're right. Uh, and Friedman said, in contrast, my method, what I can do is I can say, okay, we both share the same end. We share the end of the well-being of the poor. But I think that if you examine the, the, the data, I can show you that my way of organizing society will be more successful at achieving that end than your way. 
And uh, whether or not one buys into how Friedman read the data, uh, that Friedman was adamant that that mode of argumentation was much more likely to get somebody to think, to rethink the views that they already hold than a mode that proceeds based on an abstract logic alone. And on the surface, it appears to be uh, more scientific. And I have to say that as someone who's educated at Chicago and influenced deeply by Austrian thinking after graduate right. school, I'm sort of in between. I, I see right. the argument that you don't want to spend all your time trying to convert people, I think is the phrase that you used in the book, that Friedman didn't want to have to convert people using just right. logic. But and he said that the only if, if it's all logic, then you have to convert them through your logic or force them, and he didn't want to force them. So then you got to argue right. them. And of course, he was really good at arguing, but it's uh, <laughs> most people don't argue to to learn the truth. They argue because it's fun. So most people yeah, who, who you right. argue with aren't going to go, wow, I never thought of that. Now, you might dent them eventually, but it, it's the empirical approach has obviously got some superior virtues. The problem I have now, you know, 30-something uh, years out of graduate school is that I used to have a romance about empirical evidence that I think Friedman ha had uh, that the truth will out, that eventually uh, the, the best empirical work will convince people and I think that's true of certain kinds of empirical work, and his is the the best kind. I think the monetary history of the United States is probably the most influential, single most influential piece of empirical work in economics. Uh, right. It's not, but it's not complicated empirical work. It's not multivariate regression. And I've come to believe uh, we did a podcast with Jim Manzi on this, and it's certainly the essence of Hayek's pretense of knowledge Nobel Prize address that in complex systems you really can't measure things the way. Uh, you look like it seemed like you can, and what then turns to tends to be overwhelming is bias and 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 you're back really just pretending you're scientific, what I call scientism. So I think that's the um, I think if we're really honest, uh, we are ultimately going to be arguing about logic, but we're using these these data these these empirical studies, I think often as as support that that maybe is not so legitimate. Oh, absolutely. No, that's right. That's absolutely right. I mean, it's a deep tension in the history of economics, right? It's, um, there's a um, often an attempt to represent ideas as more scientifically uh, uh, based, more empirically founded than often is the case. And it's obviously a problem right. on both sides of the spectrum. I'm not picking on. Friedman. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No. And I mean, it's that's. <laughs> That's what I mean. That's that's an interesting thing about looking at the contrast between this generation I was talking about in the 1930s and the generation of which Friedman was a central figure. Is that you look in the 30s, you look at uh, people like Knight um, and uh, and Hayek at the time, and um, and a number of their colleagues, and they looked at Keynes, and they they thought, you know, this guy is um, is has an enormous amount of public credibility, and he leverages his scientific reputation, the fact that he has these uh, fantastic scientific credentials, uh, to head out and to claim that there's scientific merit behind propositions that they saw as really based on his own personal views, that not as being a product of scientific consensus at all. And their response to that was to say, okay, um, we shouldn't embrace this kind of public role, that this is something, what Keynes is doing is in some ways antithetical to what the academics should be doing. By embracing this kind of public role, it's a false representation. Uh, Representation of, of of something that's not science as being such, um, and it, it, there's a real generational transfer when you get to Friedman and you see how uh, vociferously Friedman embraced his public role, um, and in a, in a sense he modeled himself in that way after Keynes. That he was, um, and Friedman and Keynes are in some ways the two uh, great poles of uh, of 20th century public economics, and. Uh, and so, uh, you know, how so it, it, it cuts both ways, this representation of ideas as being scientifically uh, based that aren't necessarily so um, can, can happen on the right and on the left. And whenever it happens, the one uniform thing is that it bothers colleagues on the other side yeah. of the aisle who, who, uh, who watch it occurring. Yeah. I mean, the one other interesting thing I'll say is you talk about this sort of marketplace of ideas phenomenon. And that's something that really that Friedman really believed in is that, you know, Friedman thought much as you have goods competing in a marketplace and the, the best good will win out. You have ideas competing in a marketplace of ideas, and the best idea will win out over time. Uh, he had a real faith uh, in the capacity of better ideas to uh, to win when you have uh, clashes in public debate, and uh, that undergirded a lot of the way in which he participated in public debate. Um, and as a historian, I appreciated that because it it also um, 
it was the way that he, you know, he thought about his own papers. He, he was very open about his own papers because he thought that, uh, that scholars reading them would, uh, the ones who were reading them in the right way would win out over time. Yeah, it's interesting. And I interviewed him uh, for Econ Talk in 2006, shortly before he died. Yeah, yeah, I drew on that interview a little bit. It was helpful. And he says in there, and it may be false modesty. Again, this is one of those issues I think for an historian, it's hard to know. But he says that he didn't feel that his monetary history of the United States, co-written with Anna Schwartz, uh, was decisive in bringing the world to the view, which it, which certainly became the view that monetary yeah. uh, policy is the key to stopping inflation, as opposed to all the other theories that were prevalent in the 60s, which were cost push and something, this pull and unions and oil prices. Friedman said, no, it's the money supply. And I think he basically won that intellectual debate. But when I asked him about that, he said, no, 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 it wasn't my, it wasn't my study. It was events in the world that caused people to see that that in New Zealand, for example, they'd stopped printing money and inflation went down. And he said what he was what he would admit to, and I think and you talk about this as well, is that you need to have ideas around that that allow events to take advantage of them. So when when yeah. when it's when you see that inflation went down, it's nice that there's a study you can wrap your arms around and hold up and wave that says, oh look, here's the proof. But it is that's the causation. That's the direction of the causation. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right, and that's that's a crucial thing to understand. Is Friedman thought a lot about this, and he he thought a lot about both Friedman and Hayek thought a lot about the relationship between ideas and political change. And Friedman's theory was very much the one that you laid out right there. Is that you that his role, as he saw it, was to lay out a kind of intellectual infrastructure to put a whole set of policy ideas uh, out there on the table and have, and then they would sort of lie in wait. Um, and so this is what he did in, in his Newsweek column. As he you know, it started in 1966, read by over 10 million people, very influential column. And he threw out all kinds of stuff, whether it's uh, cutting funding for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, uh, eliminating government aid for natural disasters, uh, the flat tax, uh, school vouchers, uh, negative income tax, and so on. And, and volunteer all these army. ideas. Yeah, volunteer army, exactly. That's, um, and so he threw all this stuff out there, and most of it at the time looked absolutely crazy to people. Um, it was really – it seemed like um, a totally unfeasible ideas. And uh, and then, as he saw, uh, you just waited for these different – whether it's the public education system or whether um, whether it's monetary policy or whatever. You wait for a, a crisis to arise where people are suddenly sensing that the existing system isn't work, working and they're casting about for other ideas. And then having this set of alternatives uh, lying there ready, ready to hand uh, would make them suddenly seem viable in a way that they weren't before. And so this isn't a story purely of, um, of ideas bringing about processes of political change. Um, instead, it's a story about people uh, generating ideas and then waiting for political events to reach a point where they seem viable when they didn't before. Now, you describe Friedman as a utopian, which he clearly was. Uh, and as you point out, those ideas you just listed, most of which he laid out in Capitalism and Freedom in 1962, were, were so far out of the mainstream. And many of them, of course, were adopted, although in 2006, he, when I interviewed him, he emphasized how many of them weren't. Uh, he was very right. much at the end of his life. And, I th and you mentioned this as well in the book. He was half empty rather than a half full kind of guy, particularly with respect to right. the size of government. So one of the, I think, right. the ironies of, of this whole conversation is that while the idea of the free market has been resurrected since the Great Depression, its impact is, it's not zero, but it's not anything close to what its proponents certainly argued for. But I want to make a different point, which is you describe him as a utopian who at the same time was willing to get into the policy arena and put forward ideas that were steps toward uh, utopia, rather than rather than pretending that one day overnight people would just say, "Oh, let's let government get much smaller." He wanted to take steps toward it, and so two examples that you mentioned that I think are important are school vouchers right. and the negative income tax. And the negative income tax was the inspiration for the earned income tax credit, which has right. become a very important idea. And it it just struck strikes me as a as a student of Milton's, and certainly as somebody who agrees with an overwhelmingly large amount of what he had to say, that those, you could call them compromises, he sort of held his nose. He sort of said, well, these are things we could do in the meanwhile because until we get to the better solution, that they had a, they have a tendency to get entrenched. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, myself included, 
I don't want to see school vouchers and I don't want to see uh, the earned income tax credit yeah. because the recipients, once they get the money, are going to use the political process to enlarge the scope of those programs and I think do some some bad bad things, which I think is what has happened. What's your reaction yeah. to that? Yeah, well, so, I mean, I think that this is important for a variety of reasons. First of all, I think it's important for understanding Milton Friedman. Um, as I, I argue in the book that with limited exceptions in which monetary policy is an obvious one, uh, Friedman almost always believed that the market was the best way to order um, any kind of social decision-making process rather than relying on politics. And um, and so, you know, these, these examples, vouchers and the negative income tax, are usually the first things that are brought up as counterexamples. These are potentially, you know, negative income tax seems to embrace a social welfare state. School vouchers seems to embrace public education. But uh, you're exactly right that Friedman, uh, you know, when Friedman, when you catch Friedman talking to libertarian organizations, he's very quick to say, um, I don't, these aren't part of my ideal society. My ideal society would not have public education. My ideal society would not have income redistribution. But the reality is that we live in a world where abolishing these systems is, uh, is, is highly unlikely. Um, and it's highly, you know, I think to him, it's highly unlikely even that they would reach a state of crisis that would lead people to take them seriously as possibilities. So, um, so in the absence of that, he thought that the best way to bring about social change was to advocate for these kinds of policies that could help to bring more of a market uh, sensibility into systems um, that the government administered. Um, and this was powerful for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that it made Friedman seem like a more practical thinker than a utopian thinker. I mean, utopians can be powerful in, th in changing how people think about the world, but when it comes to practical policy implications, it's very hard for a congressperson to sit there and say, okay, here's how I put this into effect. Um, so this enabled Friedman to put together a, a range of proposals that did seem feasible, that did seem like things that Congress could, um, could enact. Um, and the second thing is it enabled him to speak to different audiences in different ways. And so if, if Friedman was speaking to a kind of centrist audience and he wanted to seem like a reasonable person, um, he could talk about about the ways in which vouchers would save public education. Um, and at the same time, if he was talking to a libertarian audience that had some of the skepticism that, uh, that you've just expressed, he could say, well, but this isn't really what I believe. I share your ideals, but I think this is the best way to bring something, a system close to your ideals into effect. So it gave Friedman a great deal of versatility in talking to different kinds of people. So let me give you a, a pessimistic view, get your uh, reaction. I would suggest that to a large extent, at least so far, and of course, time time passes and things change. You know, people make predictions, and our people then say, "Oh, that prediction's right or wrong." But sometimes predictions come back to bite you, and sometimes they come out and they're redeemed. Uh, you know, Friedman was very okay. critical of the eurozone; said it wouldn't last. Um, he was onto something. He may not be right literally, but he certainly understood some of the tensions that they're facing right now. Right. But my my question would be this. Uh, Certainly, Friedman and Hayek have, and their their peers have, have had a tremendous impact on intellectual life in the last half of the twentieth century and and up to the present. Yeah, but their their impact on policy has been very limited. It's, you know, we haven't moved to social planning, we haven't moved to central planning, we haven't moved to towards communism or socialism. But and we got rid of the FTC. You know, we we deregulated the FTC, but in the in the in the airlines, but. In terms of just the overall hand of government, um, you know, right now we're fighting about whether you can have sugar in the drinks in New York City, and it's it's rather striking to me of how half empty, in some sense, the glass is. Is what do you think of the argument that says that the main impact of Friedman Hayek has been on the intellectual environment rather than the policy space? <laughs> Um, you know, I, I, I well, that's certainly, um, as, as you pointed out, that's certainly an argument that Friedman himself shared. I mean, as he put it, have to, I, we've had an enormous effect on the ideas, but not the practices of our time. Um, you know, I think it's a very thick problem. I mean, when you look at the list of, of all the different proposals that Friedman put out there, a, a fair number of them have filtered into, uh, I mean, as you say, whether it's things like welfare reform and the earned income tax credit, and um, or whether it's discussions, very live discussions over government aid following natural disasters that didn't seem like live discussions a generation ago. There, there, there are a whole, you know, abolishing the volunteer army, one that you mentioned that was immediately successful. There are a whole host of policy proposals that Friedman threw out there that gained a certain degree of traction and had uh, fairly significant effects on the politics of the 
the last, um, I mean, you look at the, the, the transformation of uh, the income tax system in the early 1980s. Um, uh, and so you can look at a, a whole host of areas where these ideas have had significant effects. Um, at the same time, you know, we, the, the, the basic structure of the federal government um, certainly hasn't been transformed the way it, the way that it impacts people's everyday lives hasn't been transformed in the way that Friedman would have envisioned and hoped. Um, there's absolutely no question about that. The changes have felt to him much more incremental than, uh, than, than deeply substantive. Uh, so maybe I, I would have a more robust view of their, their influence, uh, than you just expressed there. I don't think it's a matter of purely change. I think that, you know, the, the intellectual environment and the political environment are thickly intertwined. In part, some scholars have done great work on the influence of think tanks, for instance, where you can see how that functions. Um, but at the same time, um, Maybe maybe less influence than than uh, people who see Friedman as a malign force would would have one believe. Talk. Uh, you misspoke, by the way. You talked about Friedman supporting the abolition of the volunteer army. You meant the draft, but uh, I'm sure most listeners caught that. Uh, it was just a. <laughs> yeah. um, I apologize. No problem. Uh, we're, we're out of time, but there's two things I want to ask you about, and then we'll close. Great. Talk about the differences between uh, Friedman and Hayek's vision of the good society. Uh, I think in a lot mm-hmm. of people's minds, <clears throat> well, they're both the same. They're both free market people. and But you have some very nice, interesting things to say about their differences. What were they? Well, so um, maybe I'll, I'll just uh, back up just a second there and say that, you know, I think that um, – there are different visions of the good society. You can understand one good way to understand them is to understand their different points of emphasis. Um, Hayek was somebody was a thinker who, as I see, really emphasized the ignorance of the individual. Right, his whole uh, emphasis on spontaneous orders and so on are, are really they're an advocacy of the market based on the notion that the individual person has a highly limited view of their social world, and so the market itself becomes a kind of ordering structure that allows. Um, that organizes ignorance in a much more efficient way than one individual trying to impose, as he saw it, their partial vision on a whole host of people. So Hayek was a theorist who emphasized ignorance. And uh, Friedman, at the same time, was somebody who really emphasized the market as a kind of perfect pro- processing mechanism, as, uh, as, as an embedded form of uh, of knowledge. Um, and so he, whereas Hayek emphasized the I- ignorance of the individual, uh, Friedman emphasized the knowledge embedded in the market itself. And I think this comes through in their visions of the good society is that Hayek was a little bit humbler in his vision of, uh, of what an ideal society would look like. Um, he was much more open to the idea, um, as we've discussed in The Road to Serfdom and some of his other writings, that, um, that the good society would involve uh, substantial amounts of uh, redistribution, social welfare net, uh, regulatory structures, and so on. Whereas Friedman was much more inclined to believe that the knowledge uh, Im- embedded in marketplace decisions uh, would yield better outcomes in all those different kinds of venues. And so even though Friedman uh, didn't like the label libertarianism, um, it's something that's very close to libertarianism because um, when you ha- have a choice between a, a market decision and a political decision, uh, you always opt for the former. Uh, yeah, I think I think they came together in that that knowledge issue and in, in the uh, I think of I pencil Leonard Reed's pamphlet, which we have up on the web and put a <laughs> link up to it as the part where that they shared. Uh, I pencil is really an application of the use of knowledge in society, Hayek's classic essay, and Friedman mm-hmm. loved that example and used it, of course, in the opening of Free to Choose and the front cover of Free to Choose. He's holding a pencil. Uh, deli- right. deliberately as an example of the complexity yeah. that the market can yield without anyone's knowledge, yeah. individual knowledge. But they yeah. differed where, well, they, where they differed, it seemed, was to me, was on this issue of values. And you talk mm-hmm. about that in the book. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so, and that's, you know, that's a challenge of emphasis. I think, I think there's sometimes a convenient narrative that takes hold both on the political right and the political left, although for very different reasons that, that puts Hayek and Friedman as part of the same intellectual traditions, largely adhering to the same set of views. And so part of what I'm trying to do in this book is to say, well, if you look at the long sweep of histories of, of uh, market advocacy, really realize that there are a lot of differences between the two and that you can see a sort of thick history of contestation and transformation if you look at market ideas from the 1930s to today. Uh, the challenge, of course, is that uh, that can become uh, uh, overemphasis, that in emphasizing all these differences, you forget what bring them, 
brought them together. And, uh, you know, the, Mont- the very existence of the Mont Pelerin Society as a kind of durable institution that, um, that they both were leaders of over an extended period of time is a reminder of precisely what you just were saying, is that um, despite all these differences that I've emphasized in our conversation, they were part of, um, they did share many points of views and they were part of a, of a common movement with one another. Last question. Um, in the 1930s, Keynes's main protagonist was was Hayek. From about 1957 on, and I picked that year because I think that's when Friedman wrote the theory of the consumption function, which was uh, the first brick that he put down in the wall against Keynesianism, which he continued to add to throughout his career. Um, from from that period on, Friedman was the was his was Keynes's main antagonist, certainly with respect to public policy to fight business cycles to fight the business mm-hmm. cycle, fight recessions, fight depressions. Yeah. And in general, his antagonist for an interventionist view, uh, he, he did a lot to uh, to emphasize the, the rule of law over ad hoc intervention and dis, uh, r- rules over discretion. And yet when the crisis of 2008 came uh, and, and in its aftermath, Hayek has been the voice that gets raised the most. Uh, it seems mm-hmm. to me, and I'm I'm a student of Melton and a fan of Hayek, and I've I've waved a lot of Hayek around in the last five years um, in my rap videos with John Popola and you know, Glenn Beck held up the road to serfdom on on uh, his show, which put it number one on Amazon. Do you do you find that surprising? Uh, how little Friedman's voice is heard in current debate. And how much um, I, I do and I don't. And I'll, I'll tell you, I guess I'll focus on, since you've emphasized in some ways why it's surprising, I'll, I'll, I'll emphasize why it's not. And then I'll, I'll say a word about what I think the implications of it are. Um, so uh, the, uh, an essential difference between Hayek and Friedman here, I think, is that Hayek was in many ways um, a, a dark thinker. Um, if you read Hayek in the 30s and 40s, he thinks the world is coming apart. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly Hayek's response to the Great Depression was not one that was imbued with a great deal of optimism. He thought that the best that to a certain extent, you just had to wait things out, that if you try to intervene to solve the problem, you'll only exacerbate it. Um, whereas Friedman was this tremendous optimist. I mean, Friedman, um, was always emphasizing, and he said that what Hayek and Robbins got wrong when they responded to the Great Depression was that, was precisely that, that they said that you shouldn't do anything. And he thought that part of what he was doing with his, monetary theory was to try to come up with a way to say um, that there was a solution, that there was something that could be done um, that would prevent this kind of problem, um, a kind of counter-narrative to Keynes. Um, and he always emphasized, instead of dwelling on um, the, the catastrophe, the catastrophic situation that the world was in, he always emphasized the ways in which those catastrophes could be solved by the market. Um, and so when you reach this moment of deep pessimism that I think a lot of people associated with organizations like the Tea Party felt, uh, Hayek, in many ways, feels more consonant with that set of views. His uh, chiliastic tones align with the perspective that a lot of uh, market advocates uh, have in the present day. And so in that sense, it's not surprising at all that there is this kind of revival of Hayek. At the same time, I, I would say to them um, that precisely what made Friedman so influential in the public sphere was that sense of optimism, right? I mean, I, I make an argument in the book that Friedman was um, – in many ways, the rhetorical underpinning of Reaganism, um, that a lot of Reagan's messages about the, 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 the uh, benefits of the market were derived from rhetoric that Friedman had developed. And, uh, and so in emphasizing this, uh, this dark perspective, um, that can be very powerful among subsets of people who agree with that perspective, but in the end, it can uh, limit the public influence of a group um, in a broader political environment that in, in difficult times is looking for optimistic solutions rather than expressions of despair. My guest today has been Angus Bergen. Angus, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.